I am Ben Felder with The Frontier, and on this episode of Listen Frontier, we're going to discuss capital punishment with some intimate details that some might find disturbing. disappointed that the state would continue on with the execution um, that just happened. To see that, you know, a short win for of the granting of the um, stay of execution to within 24 hours to be um, overturned um, is unfortunate. I believe capital punishment is appropriate for the most heinous of crimes and it is our duty as state officials to obey the laws of the state of Oklahoma by carrying out this somber task. He uh, began convulsing about two dozen times, uh, full body convulsions, and then uh, began to vomit, uh, which covered his face and began to run down uh, his neck and side of his face. On Thursday, October 28th, 2021, 60-year-old John Marion Grant was the first person to be executed by the state of Oklahoma in nearly seven years. Capital punishment has become especially controversial over the past several years, as the state has experienced complications with its most recent executions, struggled to find the drugs necessary, and has had at least one death row inmate in particular draw national attention for his repeated claims of innocence. The execution of Grant on Thursday was an attempt by the state to return to its normal process of administering the most severe form of punishment. But accounts from the ordeal brought more questions about the state's ability to execute inmates without complications. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. And on this episode of Listen Frontier, I speak with Dylan Goforth about this week's execution of Grant, the scheduled execution of Julius Jones, and what appeared to go wrong on Thursday. Dylan Goforth is the editor-in-chief of The Frontier, and he was in McAllister on Thursday to cover the execution of John Grant. He joins me by phone from Norman today, which is Friday, October 29th. And Dylan, there's a lot to unpack, but can you first give us a quick reminder of why it had been so long since the state of Oklahoma had executed someone and why it was not a sure thing we were going to see the return of capital punishment this week? Sure. We So back in uh, 2014, um, sort of when the problems first um, started to be noticed. There, there was a double execution for two men, Clayton Lockett and Charles Warner, that was scheduled. Uh, the first time Oklahoma ever planned to execute two men on the same night. The first execution, I mean, I think most people who are listening to this probably know that Clayton Lockett's execution um, it's the one they kind of famously refer to as being botched. Uh, and it went so poorly that they uh, postponed Charles Warner's execution um, and saying that they wanted to figure out what had happened. You know, and I think it, just the whole situation some time to breathe well nine months later they execute charles warner uh and then he dies uh, a little more typically than you know than lockett's execution where you know they had trouble with the needle and um things went wrong uh pretty drastically and charles warner he it was more of a traditional you know he said 
when the drugs were entering his system. The kind of the thing you hear often is my body, you know, I think he said my body's on fire, my body's burning. Um, and then kind of like displayed some uh, that he was uncomfortable during the execution. And then he died. The next execution, execution they set was for Richard Glossop. Four stays of execution um, following three attempts and it was never executed. The last time they realized they ordered the incorrect drugs for his execution and then later found that they actually used the in- incorrect drug um, on in Charles Warner's execution in 2015. And so at that point, uh, the attorney general stepped in and said, we're going to stop executions until we can figure out what's going on. So it has been on hold since 2015 until yesterday. And even yesterday, we didn't know um, if that was going to happen. There's a, a federal lawsuit on Oklahoma's uh, execution protocol that's kind of hanging over all of this. And um, the former attorney general, Mike Hunter, had promised not to seek execution dates for inmates while that lawsuit was ongoing. Sort of recently, you know, obviously Hunter's left office. There's a new attorney general who was appointed by Governor Kevin Stitt. And in the meantime, a federal judge had removed um, several inmates from that lawsuit. And when that happened, the AG sought execution dates, which were granted Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, And, you know, ironically, the Court of Criminal Appeals then later put a stay in place for yesterday's execution and for the November 18 execution of Julius Jones. But SCOTUS overruled that stay yesterday at about 2 o'clock, if I remember right, 2 p.m., execution was scheduled for four and at that point there was no avenue left for grant to avoid um execution and uh, at four o'clock they started execution and at 421 he was pronounced dead so who was john grant and, and why was he sentenced to death yeah john grant was a guy who he was actually in uh, um sort of unusual i mean a, a little bit in terms of the death row inmates he was already in prison when his death uh, row crime was committed he had he, he um, you know, his attorneys and their clemency packet, which is a, a very interesting read, they kind of paint this picture of, I believe he was one of nine children. Um, uh, he was, uh, you know, described growing up sort of in, in abject poverty, uh, first ran away from home at the age of 12, was arrested multiple times as a teenager, grew up in juvenile homes where he was abused and, um, you know, some pretty rough environments. And um, By 19, I believe he was in prison for, a string of robberies and um, was, I think he's serving like 120 years in prison for these robberies. If I remember, I think it was four 30 year sentences. So um, the reason he ended up on death row was one day he got into an argument with a food services uh, supervisor who basically they were arguing over um, a a tray of breakfast food, I think is, is what I remember reading. And um, she told him to just kind of move on. And he wanted a, a tray of food that I guess maybe wasn't his, I don't know. And he had, uh, I guess, allegedly told her, you know, he was going to get her. Well, the next day or later that day, he was kind of hiding out by a storage closet is, um, uh, you know, testimony in his, in his trial. And he had fashioned a shiv, kind of a screwdriver like shiv. And when she walked by, he grabbed her, pulled her in the closet and stabbed her, I believe, 14 times um, and killed her in that closet. And so that's what got him put on death row where he's been since, I think, 2000. Yeah. And, and you and I have talked uh, in multiple episodes about uh, uh, the death penalty and um, specifically Julius Jones, which we'll probably get into here in a minute. And um, it, it sometimes it's, it's the focus can be on, on the policy of it and, and the, the opposition to the death penalty is just a form of punishment. Um, you know, but there's often another side, obviously, right. With, with a victim and their family. And, and so, you know, not just, uh, you know, John Grant, you know, a probably a stressful day for him, but probably the family of the victim too stressful sure. yesterday what what was the process for covering 
an execution. So you went down to the prison in McAllister. Um, just kind of walk us through what that experience was like, what your day was like until we, you know, how, 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 how was your, what was your day like covering this yesterday? Sure. So they um, have tried to, it used to be a much more informal process um, going to cover an execution, uh, especially pre Clayton Lockett when it was a pretty um, routine matter. I mean, part of, Part of why it was routine before is uh, has something to do a little bit with a lawsuit that's ongoing and that they had easier access to the drugs, um, drugs that were more, I guess, reliable, you might say, in in um, how they interacted with the inmate's body and um, drugs that were um, you know, a little more easier to obtain. And those drugs have since, um, for instance, like pentobarbital um, was, was used to be used in, in place of what now they use midazolam. And, um, pentobarbital was one that um, had a, a long history of being used in executions, but people didn't enjoy it being used in, uh, you know, kind of a life-saving drug or whatever used in executions, and, and they no longer have access to that. And so um, the process used to be a lot more informal. You just would, you know, tell DOC, hey, I'm coming, and then you would show up, and, and they would take you to the, you know, the um, H unit where the executions happen, and you would watch it, and then you would leave. Now it's a it's much more interesting, and so it's a, much, it's a process of, filling out paperwork and names and driver's licenses. And, um, they want you on site. So for instance, yesterday the execution was scheduled for four. They want you off um, the uh, grounds by eight at the latest. And so you've got to get there at noon. And so you basically pull up, you get there at noon, you walk into, they turn the, um, basically the visiting center, the visitor center into a, a, a makeshift media room. Um, you get there about noon and you, uh, basically get staged and set up and then you sit and wait, uh, around two thirty, three o'clock. They, um, this something is very ghoulish and everyone, um, the minute they learn that this is how the process is handled, they get very upset. I don't know necessarily a better way to do it. Uh, you have a room full of, I don't know, three, four dozen reporters and they only have, uh, four spots available for media witnesses, right? If you go to an execution, you're basically saying, I will agree to be a witness, um, you know, uh, to, to what's about to happen if I'm here. And so they basically, everyone gets a number. They put the numbers, um, in a fishbowl and they draw four names out and that's who the witnesses are. So then at that point, those people have to basically strip down. I mean, you, no phone, no wallet, no keys, no computers, no recording devices. It's just you and your clothes, no watches. Um, they put the witnesses in a van. So it's always, um, four randomly drawn names and then the associated press reporter, um, because it sort of acts as a feed. They put them in a white van and drive them to the H unit. Um, they probably get there around three fifteen or so, and at four o'clock the the execution process starts. And so, well, I, I was my name was not drawn yesterday, and so I stayed in the media center where you just sort of hang out and wait and um, until um, Justin Wolf, who everyone probably knows, the CIO for for DOC, he gets a phone call from the director that announces the time of death. He tells us the time of death, and then we all wait for the uh, media witnesses to come back and tell us what happened. You, you described the processor as as kind of possibly ghoulish, and I I was thinking about just the imagery of yesterday, and uh, you and our our colleague Cassie were, were sharing some video of like the drawing process and that kind of thing. And um, I would understand if someone who maybe doesn't pay much attention to the journalism industry were to see that yesterday and be like, eh, I don't know, that, that just makes me feel kind of uncomfortable. It's just the, or, or something kind of sensational about it, right? A little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we also saw yesterday why it's so important to have that 
that media witness. And, and what I mean by that is uh, the Department of Corrections eventually said in a very small statement that the execution went off as planned. There were no issues. Um, it's hard to say that that was the case when you heard, um, in this case, uh, Sean Murphy of the Associated Press recount what he witnessed. Uh, we played some of that video at the top of the episode, um, but he provided details that didn't necessarily uh, connect well with what the DOC had said. Sure. You know, that was uh, so last night I was thinking about this uh, a good deal, and there was a. Um... You know, Sean Murphy has seen, one of the things I asked Sean yesterday was, um, you've seen a lot of executions. I think this was his 14th or 15th execution that he'd seen. And I said, have you ever seen someone uh, vomit during the execution? Because, you know, he told us that, that Grant convulsed and, and vomited uh, on himself twice during the execution. And I had never heard of vomiting. Convulsing is, is something that happens during, it's happened. It's been reported often um, in executions where midazolam is used as a sedative. But um, vomiting was a new one to me, and he said he had never seen it. I mean, just outside of just being visually, you know, arresting, he had never seen that happen before. And so I looked last night. There's lots of cases of convulsion, but no, only uh, I was only able to find one reference to um, vomiting, and it was from an Associated Press reporter who was covering. He's seen something like 400 executions, and he said he'd only seen vomiting once. And so, like you said, it's a good reason for. I mean, that's the whole point of media witnesses, right? Like I've seen executions. Um, Sean has seen a bunch. I mean, it's it, the reason for the media witness is an impartial person there because if no one's there watching it and the state comes out and, you know, they execute John Grant, he convulses and vomits on himself and then they say everything was fine. There are no complications. That's all we have to go on. And so that's the point of, of having experienced reporters like Sean Murphy at an execution every time because you can trust him um, to tell you what happened and what he saw and sort of make up you know, your own mind. And I have my own thoughts about why, what they meant, meant by no complications. And right before we were recording this, the DOC director held a short 15 minute press conference where he touched on it a little bit. But I, I think that it has something to do with um, the, the uh, trial in February and that lawsuit and, and sort of what's at stake and um, the, the, the issues relating to that lawsuit sort of as like the state believes and then the attorneys for the death row inmates believe. And that's always the question. I mean, you know, the, you know, there are probably plenty of people who who support capital punishment who say it was success. I mean, the the, the inmate was executed uh, fairly quickly. I mean, you know, it didn't take hours. Uh, you know, there wasn't some of the same troubles that we've seen in past. Um, but there's others who naturally are going to be uncomfortable with some of just the description. And and obviously we've. Those who are opposed to the death penalty often go to the you know protection against cruel and unusual punishment, and and I guess that's kind of in the eye of the beholder. Um, but as you said, this did seem to be kind of a unique a unique case. Did you get any sense from the Department of Corrections that they felt like there needed to be any changes moving forward? No. So they said basically today, and it, I mean pretty much confirmed what I was my own thoughts on it was that they viewed there being no complications as it being more of uh, there being no complications in the process, right? What they are arguing in the lawsuit and, and eventually that trial is that the problems that led to the, you know, the botched Clayton Lockett execution and then what went wrong with um, Charles Warner and then uh, later the attempts to execute Richard Glossop were more uh, administrative failures. So um, the way the drugs were handled or the way the drugs were stored or who handled the drugs the training that people received to be a part of that process. I mean, the grand jury report 
from the locket execution described people basically showing up to work the day of the execution and being told, oh, you're, you're on the team, you're involved in the process. And so they want to go in front of the judge in February and say, look, we've cleaned up. Those problems were administrative failures. That is cleaned up. We have a you know, new warden, new DOC director, protocols that are a little more um, spelled out in terms of what to do with the drugs and how they're handled and how they're stored and, and administered and who does it. Um, whereas the death row attorneys, their argument is uh, many things, but one specifically is midazolam, the drug itself, is problematic. And there have been other states where people have convulsed for hours before dying, you know, or waiting for that sedative to take hold. And um, they are going, they know after last night that those attorneys are going to point to this and they are going to try to use what happened in the John Grant execution. Uh, they're going to tie it directly to midazolam because it was the only drug that had been administered at the time um, that the, you know, the, the vomiting and the convulsion started. And they're going to say, look, this is evidence that they, that their drug protocol, the three drug cocktail that they use is unconstitutional. So the state doesn't want the focus to be on that drug or the administering of that drug. So when they say no complications, what they're saying is um, we completed the execution uh, in a timely manner, started at 409, he died at 420. Uh, talking about the convulsions and vomiting, they don't want the focus to be on that drug itself. They want it to be on sort of the administrative factors that, that led to the execution. And so, um, you know, the question will be now with um, – now that the grant execution has happened, the next one is Julius Jones in, in three weeks on November 18th. And, the, you know, the stay um, that was issued by the uh, appeals court uh, was for his case as well. But that means that the SCOTUS ruling that overturned or dissolved the stay also appealed or um, was dealt with his case. And so that means that um, for, for right now, his execution is going on as scheduled on November 18th. And uh, his attorneys are going to have to find, try to find a way, you know, short of clemency, um, which his clemency hearing is Monday, short of clemency to, to get his case in front of uh, court again if they don't want him to be executed. So they're going to really, I believe, hammer on the, the medazolam uh, angle and, and try to find a way to get that in front of a judge. And obviously, you know, the Julius Jones case will be a little bit different. Um, you know, yesterday the debate, at least, you know, from what you saw on social media, you know, I had a chance to go to a demonstration that was held in front of the governor's mansion. Um, a, a lot of those who were against what was taking place yesterday were arguing from just being against the, the death penalty in general, you know, regardless of the evidence or the crime or whatever it might be. You know, Julius Jones is someone who's maintained his evidence and has, has, has garnered a lot of national attention for that. Um, and there's many people, even people who are in favor of the death penalty, who don't believe that he is guilty of the crimes he was convicted of. Um, so when you refer to the clemency hearing on Monday, uh, you know, there's also an argument that, uh, you know, that he is innocent. And I, I, I guess the expectation is that clemency will be approved by the partner parole board, right? I mean, we saw a commutation request that was approved, right. and then uh, the governor said that it needed to be a clemency. So I guess there's an assumption that this will ultimately be a decision by the governor to make whether or not that execution goes forward. Right. And then I saw um, just before we started recording that um, someone got a, a – brief comment from Governor Stitt about the execution yesterday, and he sort of echoed the, the sentiment of uh, DOC Director Scott Crow and just said that the state carried out the execution, it went as planned, and um, you know his thoughts were with the family member of, uh, of uh, Gay Carter, the victim, um, who Grant killed. And so, um, w you know, it seems like Stitt is not phased. I mean, I know that's a public statement that not, doesn't always necessarily reflect reality, but he seems unfazed by what happened yesterday, and um, 
yeah, like you said, the bowl, you know, assuming that the looming, you know, grand jury investigation of the pardon parole board and lawsuits and threats don't um, change their minds, you would assume that they would, um, they would recommend that he be granted clemency. So the bowl in that case would be in, in Skid's court. And, you know, who knows what happens at that point. Um, it's a decision that has to come in, you know, less than three weeks now. Well, we, we played a clip in the intro of, of the governor speaking this past year of, of reiterating his support for uh, capital punishment. Um, and you talk about that public statement, but it's important to note that one, this is the first execution under uh, his his tenure as governor. Mm-hmm. And even if the public statement is everything went according to plan, I mean, you would have to imagine that at the very least he has questions for his, um, you know, d- director of Department of Corrections. At least one has yeah. some questions about what happened. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely, you know, their plan originally was to have seven executions occur um, between you know, yesterday or between the grant original um, execution date and um, the trial in February and to have the first one be one that went so uh, dramatically, you know, and have to have something, you know, the vomiting, which has never occurred, uh, you know, that I know of in an Oklahoma execution, for that to be the very first one in the beginning of the new, you know, updated death penalty protocol with, uh, you know, Julius Jones' execution coming next and leading to the trial, I think they, for sure, whatever they're saying publicly, there has to be some, at least, you know, concern or worry um, in the background about, uh, you know, their ability to do this. Because, you know, executions, you hate to frame it this way, but to some extent, there's a public relations um, battle behind them. You know, they have to, You, if you want to, especially after Oklahoma's, you know, separate history with executions, if you want to continue to carry them out, um they have to look like they're being done professionally and safely and humanely. And that's not what, I mean, the look on Sean Murphy's face yesterday told you all you need to know about how it appeared. Um, Scott Crow today said that, you know, he, he believes that Grant was unconscious and was, was dry heaving and, and regurgitating. Sean Murphy described it as two dozen full body convulsions and vomiting. Um, but you have to believe that it, that was not how they hoped uh, yesterday's execution would go you know, leading on into Julius Jones and then whatever comes next and eventually into the trial. Well, and I want to end with a, a little bit of a discussion about, you know, like you say, that public sentiment. Uh, this is a state where voters, a majority of voters have enshrined, you know, capital punishment into the Constitution. This is, a, you know, unsurprisingly, a very conservative state where, uh, you know, a belief in capital punishment is, is, is usually the you know stronger than maybe you would find in, in more progressive or blue states. Um this week, you know, there was a, a Oklahoma firm that put out a poll that showed that made the claim that it was it was a partisan issue, but a majority of Oklahomans still supported capital punishment. And I mean, I, I don't want to get into the accuracies or inaccuracies of, of one poll, um, but it, it it was believable to to know to hear that the majority of Oklahomans support it. But I also wondered, you know, we haven't seen executions in several years. Um, I wonder as they start again, and now you know Thursday is a perfect example when Oklahomans hear about executions on the news, they read about these details. I'm not predicting any kind of major, you know, public perception swing, but it definitely does. It's different when they're actually going on and you're hearing about, you know, inmates vomiting and convulsing um, as opposed to just, you know, when there's no executions taking place because the state is, is, is taking a break. Right. Yeah. I, you know, that's like you said, there's a little bit of a, a public, um, you know, sentiment, you know, war going on because they, like I said, they have to, 
these have to look like they're being done humanely and professionally for people to have confidence that Oklahoma can do it moving forward. Now, not everyone cares about that, but a lot of people do. And it's definitely a black eye for the state when they don't go well, especially the very first one after all of the, the problems from the past. You know, kind of, you, it, it did feel like yesterday leaving the prison, it felt just like it did, um, you know, leaving the prison after all of the, the Richard Glossop attempts that were coming after Charles Warner and after Clayton Lockett. It felt, it felt like we were in the exact same place we've been before. And um, I don't think that's what Oklahoma hoped uh, would happen. That's going to do it for today's episode of Listen Frontier. Today's episode included audio from The Oklahoman and was produced from the studios of Mostly Harmless Media in Oklahoma City. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.